0: Great, and uh, we're on page 801 of our Black Church Bibles, Malachi chapter 2. Just as you turn there, let me welcome you once again. Uh, Great to have you here, whether you're visiting for the very first time or you're regularly with us. We are now about halfway through this little series in Malachi, and we come to one of the more challenging passages for us to think about, I think, together uh, this morning towards the end of chapter 2. I'm going to lead us in prayer, therefore, and ask for God's help, uh, and then I'll read uh, the passage to us. Our Father, you tell us that the one that you esteem is the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles before your word. And so we pray, our Father, for the help of your Spirit, that uh, whatever our life circumstance, whatever pains there are in our hearts, you would help us to hear and receive your word this morning, not as the word of man, but as the word of God, and that your word would bring wisdom and healing and light and life, as you promise it does. In Jesus' precious name we ask it. Amen. Malachi chapter 2 then, and starting at verse 10. Have we not all one Father... Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the one who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Hope you want to keep that open in front of you as ever. And also that there's a, you'll want to see, I think, an outline on the back of the notice sheet of where we're heading in the next little while. And uh, we all know, don't we, that, that weddings are a time of great celebration. Uh, we have lots in our church family here. The build-up can be a bit stressful, but the day itself is usually wonderful. Everybody looks amazing. Friends and family descend from all over the world. People say nice things about each other, and right at the heart are those solemn vows and promises that are made before God and the congregation. You'll be familiar with them, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, richer, poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, to cherish, to serve one another, till death us do part. So the days of great excitement and optimism and the very best of intentions, but we all know, very sadly, that the couple doesn't always live happily ever after. Uh, For one reason or another, tears of joy can turn to cries of pain, Uh, high hopes can turn to ashes, and trust that's been building for decades sometimes can go in an instant. You've seen that this morning's passage is about divorce, and it is impossible for any of us to approach a subject like this dispassionately, and nor should we. Uh, Some here this morning have themselves been divorced. Many have parents who have been divorced. And if you've not yet personally been affected by divorce, you know that within your very close circles, you will soon be so. I grew up, like most of us, with my friends' parents divorcing. Uh, By the time I was 25, it surprised me it was that soon. It was my own friends who were starting to divorce, uh, including the president of the Christian Union, just a year above me, Uh, at uni by the time that he was 25. Uh, The pain that divorce causes is very, very deep every time, and it remains raw for many years, sometimes for the rest of our lives. So it it might seem easier to avoid altogether a topic like this or any passage of the Bible that mentions it, but God is a, a loving father And he speaks into every area of our lives, even into those areas in which we feel our deepest wounds. And he speaks with words of grace and hope and healing as well as challenge. And it is good for us to listen, even when it is hard. But as we start, we need to register that even though our passage is about divorce, it's set at a very specific moment in Israel's history, about 430 BC, we think, and it was written with one specific intention in mind, to correct a dangerous trend that had emerged among God's own people for divorcing far too easily and for really bad reasons. Uh, the passage is therefore not trying to be a, a topical or an exhaustive treatment of the subject of divorce, nor is it trying to answer all of our modern questions about when divorce may or may not be permissible and what about remarriage. Many of those questions just don't get addressed at all. We mustn't try and force this text into saying something it's not trying to do. The Bible has much to say about divorce that isn't in this passage and that I simply won't have time to go into this morning. Inevitably, therefore, I, I am aware it's gonna raise questions that it will be, will be left unanswered this morning. But I, I hope and I believe that we are the kind of community in which we can talk those questions through and uh, pray them through calmly and lovingly and clearly in the days and weeks to come. And I very much hope that you will want to do that, especially, but not only if these issues are very personal for you. But I'm hoping, too, that for for all of our questions and pain, we will still be able to receive this passage on its own terms. And really on its own terms, it is a passionate appeal for faithfulness. Malachi says twice, first in verse 15 and then again in verse 16, guard yourselves Do not be faithless. Uh, That is a word that we desperately need to hear. But biblical morality is never a naked command, it always starts with a motivation. And so, first, this morning, we're looking at three names of God that are going to drive that appeal, I hope, for us today. So, first, then, motivation, your faithful God, the one that we've been thinking about all morning. And name number one is Father. Verse 10 says, have we not all one father? Speaking of God, has God not created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now, if you've got any brothers or sisters, you will know that siblings have an incredible ability to wind one another up. Uh, There are things that if anyone else in the world were to say with them, we would smile and say thank you for the wise advice we've just received, but if it comes from a brother or sister, then it can be cue for World War III. And when parents are wanting to try and diffuse those sibling rows, they'll often resort to some sort of argument like, but you're meant to be brothers, you're meant to be sisters. And what they mean is that that kind of family bond that we have, comes with with implications it makes it totally inappropriate for us to be so lousy to each other uh, some of the time and that's really the point that Malachi's making here Uh, God was father to the people of Israel we've seen that already in Malachi it's a title obviously that speaks of a unique and an exclusive relationship that was established when he rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He called them his firstborn son. We're told he set his fatherly love upon them. He promised to protect them and provide for them and lead them and guide them in paths of righteousness. And that intimate relationship brought with it obvious obligations. We saw some in chapter 1 about their obligations to God. If he's your father, we should honor him. This time, the focus is on obligations it brings to one another. Because if all of God's people share the same Father, then we are, by definition, family to one another. We are brothers and sisters. We're people who should look out for one another. We should have each other's backs. And so Malachi says, why then are we faithless to one another? It's bad enough to be faithless to someone you hardly know. But the crime is multiplied when it's a brother or sister. Then as well as Father, God is creator. uh, The word in Genesis 1 takes us back, uh, in verse 10 takes us back to Genesis 1. It reminds us that our God is the sovereign and the loving Lord of everybody. The psalmist says the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. And I think the the logic runs if our God is the creator of all, if he invented life, if he loves us, then we can be sure that when he tells us how to live, he's not trying to restrict us or spoil our fun. He is seeking to lead and guide us in a way that has has our best interests at heart. And so we are wise to listen to him and to seek to learn from him. But again, the implications are horizontal as well, because if God has made all of us in his image, we have an obligation to one another. We're not, to, we're not free to use and abuse each other. We're not free just to toss someone aside. We're to honor and be faithful to each other. And so Malachi asks, why then are we faithless to one another? Final name is familiar in Malachi. We've had it nine times already, can you believe? It comes again, verse 12, verse 16. The people of Israel need to remember that the God to whom they are being unfaithful is none other than the Lord of hosts. He's the sovereign Lord Almighty. He's the one before whom all of his enemies will one day fall. He is the judge. And if you put all of those names together, I think they should inject a little humility into our hearts as we think about this vital topic together Uh, our culture has rejected God you don't need me to tell you that with supreme arrogance and with increasing pace over the last 50 or 60 years we just decided for ourselves that we have some sort of inalienable right to define for ourselves what it means to be human to decide for ourselves how we want to live, and especially in this area of sex and relationships. And the advocates of this so-called sexual revolution, sexual regression, we might call it better, promised us freedom and fun. And culturally, we sowed that wind and continue to do so. But what we have reaped is a whirlwind of divorce and family breakdown and loneliness and instability that has disrupted our communities and hurt our children and damaged the mental health of millions. Here then are three names I think that should humble us personally, but nationally for long enough at least to ask the question of whether God may have a point at all. Because if God is our creator, he made us, he knows what's best for us. If he's our father, he loves us and wants what's best for us. And if he's the Lord of hosts, we will one day answer to him for how we've responded to his loving and kind wisdom. So that's the motivation for where we're heading. God reminds his people, I'm your God, I've bound you together as my people. I've taught you how to live for your good and my glory. So why then? Let's move on to the accusation. You are a faithless people. Uh, that key word faithless, you'll see it comes three times in the passage with slightly different emphases. In verse 10, God's people are faithless to one another. Verse 11, they're faithless again. This time it's to God. God. And then in verse 14, they're faithless once more, and now to the wife of their youth. So it's a triple accusation. You're being faithless to God, to one another, to your wives. It's a serious accusation. Um, Faithless is an evocative word, isn't it? It implies the kind of intimate relationship that should bring loyalty and love and service. Now instead, there's just... It seems betrayal and treachery and infidelity. And if you've ever been betrayed, you will know that it hurts. And if you've been betrayed by someone really close to you, or you've spent time with someone who has been betrayed by someone close to them, you will know it hurts even more. And here are two parties who'd been glued tightly together until one ripped things apart. Uh, Putting the pieces together, here's what seems to have been happening on the ground of uh, Israel. As in most ancient cultures, people in Israel usually got married pretty young, and uh, God had told them clearly in his law that they should only marry a fellow Jew who shared their religious beliefs. You'll find that kind of um, similar ban in lots of the world's religions. Uh, The reason that it was there in Israel was never racial or ethnic, it was always to do with God's purpose for marriage. And so you'll know that bit in the marriage service where the couple have to sign a schedule of um, like the, the legal contract of getting married and they have to pick two witnesses to sign it with them so that the whole thing's binding. Well, verse 14 here says that God was the witness at every wedding in Israel. In that sense, as in Christian marriage today, there are always three people in a marriage in Israel husband, wife, and the Lord himself, who is verse 15 says, bound them together by his spirit and made them one. And God's intention is there at the end of verse 15. What was the one God seeking? Answer, godly offspring. That is the big deal. Godly marriage is never an end in itself. It has a purpose that is deeper and greater than the companionship and happiness of the couple. Because in God's economy, marriage was one of the key means by which his people would be kept spiritually pure for generations to come. And so that is why God banned into marriage. It was nothing to do with race. It was all to do with idolatry. God had warned, and Israel's history had proven, that when they married people from other nations who worshipped other gods... At best, they became complicit in, and usually they ended up actively joining in their idolatry. Intermarriage, in that sense, was like spiritual poison for his people. Uh, King Solomon was the most famous example, but it had happened lots in Israel. It was one of the main causes of the exile, and now instead of learning from their mistakes back from exile, they seem to be doing it all over again. And to make matters worse, in pretty big numbers, it seems, the men in Israel were divorcing the wife of their youth in order to go off and marry someone who worshipped a different god. Uh, We're not told where the epidemic came from. Perhaps they thought it was politically or financially advantageous to have ties with uh, influential nations around them. But we do know that these men were happy to chuck their companion, their wife of maybe 10, 20, 30 years on a heap and move on to a newer model without any kind of concern for the harm that they were leaving behind. That's what verse 16 means, I think, when it says that they were covering their garment with violence. It's a difficult verse to translate but garment or cloak was a symbol for marriage a bit like a wedding ring today and so these men were doing violence to their marriage I think is what it's saying uh, that they'd entered into before God and their wedding day they'd have promised to protect their bride and honor her now they're consigning her in that culture at least to a life of vulnerability um, usually poverty and often dishonor and yet, all the while, it seems that these men, and it does seem to be men who were doing it, had absolutely no idea that they were doing anything wrong. Uh, staggering how deceptive sin can be. Staggering how willing some of us are often in one area or another to deceive ourselves. Because these men were happily still going along to church and offering their sacrifices to God. And then do you see verse 13? Uh, They were covering the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning, wondering why he wasn't listening to their prayers and receiving their offerings. But they weren't tears of repentance, they were tears of self pity. They thought they could live however they want, they could ignore God's word, they could abandon their wives, they could destroy the fabric of the nation, and yet they could keep God on side by pitching up to church every now and then. I've known people do exactly the same thing today. But God is neither impressed nor fooled by what I think is a pretty toxic combination of faithless living and religious hypocrisy. Uh, One CU committee member I knew was sleeping with his girlfriend all the way through his year in office. And uh, because he said sorry each time, he thought that God would be okay with it. Someone else was having an affair, but they told themselves that because they were finding marriage difficult, God would understand and carry on blessing them. And it was just like the people of Malachi's day. Do you spot the the tone of almost incredulity? Why does God not find our worship pleasing? What, What problem could he possibly have with us? Once again, in Malachi, God's the one at fault, not us. We might think you're kidding, aren't you? That people could treat God like that. But if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So you think of the way that we relate to God, our creator, our redeemer, our Lord, our father. Think of the way that we relate to God's people. Think of the ongoing temptation that I suspect pretty much everyone in the room has in this specific area of sex and relationships. Defy anyone to say that we're in no danger of being faithless. 1 Corinthians 10 says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful lest you fall. And I can't tell you how many times someone has said to me, I I can't believe I got myself into this situation. I was always the strong one who was giving other people advice. I never thought it would be me. Let's together then heed this central command from God as we close the command to be faithful. And it comes twice, once in verse 15 and once in verse 16. In 15, it's uh, addressed specifically to the married. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Then the second opens up a broader application, includes our attitude to God, to other people beyond marriage and family. So guard yourselves in your spirit. And do not be faithless. Uh, This command to guard ourselves or keep watch over ourselves is repeated regularly in the New Testament. It draws together everything that we've been saying. Remembering who God is. Creator. Father. Lord. Judge remembering the unique and special place that he's given to marriage as a key building block for society in general and the church in particular, remembering that God hates sin, remembering that he knows what is best for you. Guard yourselves and do not be faithless. Uh, Some here, many I guess, are not yet married but hope to be one day. Let me say that living as a Christian is, is hard. It's really hard, even when you're married to the keenest Christian in the world. But if you're trying to live for Christ while married to someone who doesn't share your faith, it's like trying to run a marathon with your legs tied together, it brings challenges to the marriage itself. and you know the, the deepest treasure of the Christian's heart is the Lord Jesus himself. And there is a sadness an inevitable sadness when you're married to someone who can't share the thing that matters most to you in the universe, no matter how much they respect it and how much they love you. Uh, Some, of course, become Christians later on in life after they've got married or they make a decision to marry when they're young, maybe a bit blinded by love. And of course, as a church family, we want to do absolutely everything we can to support and love anyone in any kind of marriage, however difficult it is. But the people that we know in that position would be the first to tell you how hard it is. And though they love their spouse very, very much, to any who are yet to be married, God certainly says, don't choose to put yourself in that position. So I I know the temptation. Uh, Many of us have, have felt it. You look around at church and you can't see... a boy or girl you want to have coffee with, let alone to spend the rest of your life with or all the good ones are taken, and then someone who's really nice at work um, and says they respect your faith, starts showing an interest in you, and God says, guard yourselves and do not be faithless. There are others here who know I suspect that they will never be married for one reason or another. Again, God says, guard yourselves and do not be faithless. It's worth asking yourself when and where you find yourself at your weakest and most likely to stumble into sexual sin. If it's when you've been out with a group of friends or maybe you've had a drink or when you're home alone and you're browsing the internet late at night, it's worth knowing where your weak spots are and trying to guard them. Because with sin, all of us all of the time attempted to rationalize it and to deceive ourselves into thinking that our particular sin isn't a serious problem. But we know that Jesus is the one who said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Because it's better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Or the apostle Paul, flee from sexual immorality Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You're not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. Not see how close to sin you can get. Not say, I'm sure it'll be okay, I've got this under control. Flee from it, as you would from a stampeding bull. Finally here, some are married. And the appeal... It's simple, isn't it? For your own sake, for the sake of your spouse, for the sake of your children, if you have them, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the honor of God. Guard yourselves. Guard yourselves. It's a word to all of us, whether or not we're married, and whatever area of life we find ourselves most tempted to be faithless to God or to other people. Guard yourselves. Have faithful God. God wants a faithful people because that's what's good for us and it's what brings him glory and he promises us the grace that we need to walk in faithfulness by the power of the spirit even when it's really really hard and even when we can't see any hope for the future and as I say we are committed as a church to doing what we can to support and help each other And I hope you will ask for it from someone, whatever it is that you're dealing with. But as we close, I want us to fix our attention back on to to Jesus, because our passage is about men who have been faithless uh, to God, to his people, to the bride of their youth. But Jesus Christ is the faithful one. As a son, he was faithful to God in every way, even to the point of death on a cross, but then you remember the New Testament also calls him a bridegroom, uh, one who loved his bride, the church, with perfect love, one who gave himself up for her on the cross, one who's done everything necessary to present the church to himself in splendor on the last day without spot or wrinkle. His desire is for us to be holy and without blemish. And it will happen one day. And the faithful love of Jesus is not only the template for the the love that a husband should have for a wife within marriage, it's our hope, all of us. When we talk about this whole area of life, there is not a, a single person here this morning who is without sin. And there is not a single person here this morning who has made consistently wise decisions all the way through our life. We have all made mistakes. For some of us, they've been really, really big. For some of us, they've been magnified by an outward face of religion while it was happening. And in some ways, we may have to live with the human cost of some of those mistakes for the rest of our life. Which, of course, is not to say that everything we've ever done has been a mistake. But Christ is the faithful one. And he was willing to take upon himself all of our sin and all of our guilt and the curse from God that we deserve for our faithlessness in every area of life. And he was willing to die. And he did die so that you and I might be forgiven and washed clean of every wrong and declared righteous, perfect in his sight if indeed we've trusted in him. There will be people here this morning who are carrying guilt and shame around with them and haven't yet come to the Lord Jesus and asked him to take it away. But he is a faithful and loving Lord and Savior. And if you ask him, he will forgive you, and he will cleanse you, and you will live with him forevermore in a perfect new creation, where love is never tainted, but is always perfect. He didn't sacrifice himself for us because he was blinded by love, He knew all about the mistakes that you've made that no one else knows about. And yet he was willing to die for us anyway. So whether you're someone who has failed and feels real guilt, whether you're someone who's been let down and feels real pain, I want to encourage you to look to him, the faithful one. uh, Because he alone will never let you down. He will be good to you all of your days and for all eternity. And he can help to heal your pain in the present. And he does wash away the guilt of everyone who turns to him. I realize we've talked about an awful lot of things that are very personal and very painful. And uh, they'll take some time, some of us, to process the things that God has said to us. And I hope we'll give one another that space. But again, we're a community who want to help one another to love God and to serve him in every area of life. And we're here to help each other to do that. So please do avail yourself of that help from anyone here that you would like to talk to if that's you. Why don't I lead us in prayer as we close. Our great Father, we want to thank you once again for who you are, the Father who knows us and loves us perfectly and who wants what's best for us and leads us and guides us, the creator who invented life and marriage and sex and relationships and knows how it works best, the one who is the Lord of hosts. And we want to pray that you are faithful God who sent your one and only Son to die, so that whoever lives, uh, whoever believes in him might live forevermore, might be at work in the, the hearts of each one of us and in our community, that you might help us to believe and to receive that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that you would help us, each of us, to work through what it means for us to guard ourselves and to be faithful to you. And we pray it for your name's sake. Amen.